Good people and fellow students, welcome to a new season of All That Yaz. I'm so excited about our first guest of the new season because this is a man who has literally played in all the fields we primarily cover. When we talk about a multi-hyphenate storyteller, an image of this person pops up and just let me indulge you in painting a picture. This is a man who for half a decade worked at Hype Magazine as both a writer and editor, a journey that began with him writing album reviews on Facebook notes. When I first heard of him, he was premiering a documentary film he had written and directed at the Africa Rising International Film Festival. That film was Busiso's Unbreakable Story, and since that point, he has even more films under his belt. His work in film also extends to directing music videos and content for artists like Lord Kez, Mars Baby, and Zuchi Coke Dope, to name a few. This man has done virtual exhibits, marketing content, web series, curated events, and his company has gotten work placed on Times Square. Honestly, I could go on, but really, if I were to do so, it'd be here all day. He's a man of conversation whose vessel for storytelling knows no bounds. I'm talking about Fred Kayembe. How are you doing, sir? Wow, that is uh, <laughs> quite the intro. I've never heard or seen myself from that vantage point uh, were, were there any lies sir i mean i guess not I, I, <laughs> but yeah uh, yeah thank you i'm i'm doing good i'm doing good how are you doing i'm good i'm honestly a bit nervous because it's, it's the first recording of the new season and it's the first time i've actually done an interview in i think three months so i'm just hoping wow. I'm, I'm fighting a bit of the nerves, so I'm being honest, but also because it's a new season. But besides that, I'm good because ever since you accepted, I've been excited to have this conversation. Speaking of that, where did your relationship with entertainment actually begin? Like the passion of it? Was it through music? Did you used to write stories as a kid? How did this actually all start? I think that the entertainment part is coincidental. Mm -hmm. I think that like you very articulately <laughs> mentioned in your in your intro is like, I think I'm, I've always been passionate about storytelling. I didn't know it when I I was a kid i just thought that i was just like whimsical so i read a lot i drew a lot and sketched and wrote poetry my mom was a or is a seamstress she made all of our clothes so these are not things that like i recognized as creativity these are not things that i recognized as you know entertainment or anything worth consuming or worth even any value these were just things that were you know around me and when i grew up i started to see how these things can find a tangible place in the world i coincidentally found myself in entertainment because i was interested in music i, I coincidentally found myself in it because i when i got into music i found myself being interested in the stories beyond the surface of the music and so Entertainment is, is really just like the point at which the stuff that I do intersects with people, but I, I didn't necessarily identify what I was doing as a passion for entertainment directly, if that makes sense. It does, because I know for me, I think it used to start with music videos, um, yeah. because as a kid, I genuinely thought that, I'm going to place context. I'm, I'm When I say kid, I mean like five, six. I used to think yeah. like Janet Jackson's music videos, like, you know, those music videos where, they're, where they'd be doing choreography and then they'd do the same choreography in another position, but it cuts like immediately. Yeah. 
I thought that was happening like in real time. So in my mind, they were magicians. So I was like, I want <laughs> I want to learn how to do that magic. But I'm in New York in one second and then I'm in Paris in the next second. That's cool. I know it started for me like with that, but what I'm interested in, you were born in, in Congo, right? Yes. At what point did you actually move between Congo and here? like the mid to late 90s. My dad spent most of his life in Belgium. He was educated there and then he moved back to Congo and then met my mom and that's where that part of the lineage started. My family moved around quite a bit in Africa and in parts of Europe. And I was like really young then. So, you know, I don't have really any recollection of, of that period in my life, but primary school, like mid nineties was when we came to South Africa, yeah. Around how old were you then? I was, so I was born in 1990, I'm 32 this year, I think. So I, I mean, maybe seven. Seven. Yeah, I think maybe seven years old. The reason why I'm asking this is because I also kind of retrospectively realized that as much as I've loved all of the entertainment, I kind of, when I moved to South Africa, because the original like nexus of home that I had was gone, I threw myself a lot into escapism. So I threw myself a lot into books, into poetry, into a lot of these different things because it was one of the things which kind of felt like was the same there and here. And for sure. So when I got this side, that was really when my writing journey actually started because it was me just trying to figure myself out without trying to figure, whilst trying to figure myself out in a brand new yeah. place because moving as a kid or moving as a young person actually i think just moving in general moving countries is a very i don't use the word traumatic but it's a very life-altering kind of decision that you then have to find your feet was that something also similar for you in terms of when you came here you then also found yourself diving a lot more into storytelling and those types of things and if so what were the things that you were then kind of throwing yourself into yeah i can definitely relate to that i don't remember much of my life before coming to south africa so like south africa is really the, the beginning point <laughs> yeah like it's the, it's the only home that i've ever known right but like you said it's it is a quite a profoundly altering event you don't recognize it as that when you're a kid but what you do recognize at least for me, in my experience, was that my parents um, didn't speak English because they didn't grow up in English-speaking countries and then also didn't speak any of the South African languages, you know? Yeah. That was very jarring because you're, you're, you're a kid and your awareness isn't that, you know, vast, but through tedious, going through the motions, activities that any kid would participate in, you're kind of reminded that you're different, right? Because you go to the store and you want to buy something and you realize that there's a language barrier. It's like, oh, okay, it's like a little bit different for me. And then you go to school. It's like, I couldn't speak English when I started school, you know? So it was like being in all these classes where they're teaching mathematics and this and that. And so I look at it now and I go, yeah, it's definitely like music, art, and a lot of those activities that I I was doing there, there was no language barrier right they were they're the same thing through and through no matter where you go that definitely was a part of it and also I think I've always had a proclivity for like language because when I did catch on I was like out here I was out here like you know what I mean like yeah. writing anything that I could like conceive in my mind you know just like sentences poetry uh you know I just wanted to do things I I wanted and no matter what it was I wanted to express what I had subconsciously been conceiving in my mind 
the entire time that I didn't have the vocabulary for. And then you realize language is beyond syntax and subjects and predicates and like language is also like mediums, you know what I mean? Because there yeah. are things that you can better uh, communicate and express like with music than you can with words, then with motion picture than you can with print. And it really just like developed organically. The one with the least uh, barrier to entry or the lowest barrier to entry was words and pictures, like drawings and stuff, because you don't need any tools really, except it's like pencil paper. What you have in yeah. you have your school tools, essentially. Exactly. I was in grade 11. I played basketball. I enjoyed history and English literature. And I was into music because I had three older brothers. My brother Max was into punk rock. Ali was like a quintessential hip hop guy, like in the 90s. So he was Coolio and Wu-Tang. And then my brother Jay, he's very artistic even to this day. So he painted and drew and he did all those things. So I was just lucky also to just be like on the receiving end, you know, of, of all of these things. So I had started writing music uh, reviews and posting them on Facebook with a friend of mine, Nari. I was like a nerd about music. So when my brother would buy CDs, I would take the CDs and uh, go through the liner notes. Yeah. And I would go through the liner notes. I was interested for some reason in who produced the song and why and what the writing credits were and where it was recorded. And back then, you know, they had the lyrics in them so you could yeah. sing along, along. Yeah. That interest is what turned into like, oh, like I should like write this down. My friend actually suggested it. He's like, we should write this down and like just for fun and do something with it, you know? And then that was kind of how, uh, and then I got published and then that was kind of how, I guess, where entertainment came in. It's funny you mentioned liner notes because actually a few days ago, people were actually talking about the actual booklets of from CDs and, and stuff, which we kind of missed from that era. And I remember tweeting that liner notes are also how I kind of got into music myself because you get to see not just, it was how you, I started understanding the difference between a singer and a songwriter, songwriter and a producer, producer and, and session musicians and all those types of things and reading that. And then from there, it was Billboard. At a point in time, I could tell you what song was number one on Billboard from like 2000 to like 2015, if you just gave me the week. I think I know like 60% of that now. <laughs> yeah. But what I have seen from your writing in terms of your writing particularly is that you are such a depthful writer. Like it is so beautiful. Your approach to it isn't just like lyrical, it's biographical, it's thematic, and it's very earnest. It's evident in the scope that you read from your music reviews, but also just in the way that you approach your content. I wanted to highlight um, a piece from Breakfast for Dinner. And there's a blog piece that you did on how music can connect and you broke it down on three levels. The first being relatability, the second being whether it taps into like your aspirations and the third being more spiritual. Would you be okay with me reading out the code in which you explain the third because I was completely flawed at just that definition of how you explain like the third connection of music? Sure, I mean, geez, I, I don't remember what this was at all, so it might be bad, but Go ahead. So you had you already spoken about the first being relatability and aspiration, yeah. but you're like, there's this third. I'm I'm gonna read it word for word. There's a third, okay. less cerebral, more visceral level that music connects. 
you don't just listen or hear it you feel it like a painting or a photograph you see and are completely enamored with it but can't explain why when it hits it feels something like mr t punching you repeatedly in the stomach with all his finger rings on and all of his might it hurts sometimes but when it gets going you just don't want it to stop you can't explain why you're compelled by it it's not always a subject matter may not quite be the lyrics if there are any at all not specifically the melody you just are it is on its own almost a spiritual language manifesting itself through any sonic means you're willing to receive it you're able to penetrate it through all barriers that separate us from one another it consoles the inconsolable it comforts the comfortless because I know that you had written this in regards to um, Mac Miller's passing. Yes. I want to understand from you, what have been some other records that have connected with you on this level? And are there any local ones that you feel resonate with you this deeply? Now it's coming back to me a little bit. It's like I've spoken a bit in that piece about how like music was my friend. Right? Yeah. It's like, like you, you know, and, and I think that speaks a little to what we were saying about finding, I don't know, solace or companionship in things that are not humanoid. You know, when you can't <laughs> you, you know, yeah. when you can't connect with humans because some kind of barrier exists. You know, when you listen to music, it's it's kind of like when you think about like Afrobeat now, it's like the pulse of the world. But like no one other than people in Nigeria or people from Nigeria really ever a hundred percent understands like what is being said. Like specifically, <laughs> yeah. It's like I love, I love many songs from like a lot of these guys, you know, Rema, Wizkid, whoever. And it's like I don't know specifically what they're saying. And sometimes it's a it's a just like composition genius, but sometimes it's just hitting you like on another level. I think that like the first, not the first, but like what comes to mind is you know like Kid Cudi. Yeah, Kid Cudi is like maybe my favorite artist ever. And that's probably like the best example of what I'm speaking about over there. Because like, I don't think that objectively Kid Cudi is particularly like a gifted, like lyricist. I mean, you don't listen, I don't listen to his stuff and go like, oh man, that's like crazy. Like that is, it's super intricate or whatever, you know? I mean, he's exceptional at like composing melodies and that sort of thing. But it's like, before I ever knew anything about him, I remember like maybe 2007, he was on the cover of Double XL with a whole bunch of guys, I think Wale and Blue and that era. And I'd heard his music and it just like resonated like on another level. It's like, I didn't, I learned his story as I went later on. And this guy's tormented, suffering with severe depression. It's like, this was a language that he was able to access without using like language, like traditional language. And it's like, yeah. it communicates, it communicates like in its own way. So there's that, but like growing up, Guaito was that for me, you know, because that was what I was, that was what was playing when- Just came when it was actually was blowing up that time, wasn't it? it yeah. was actually, so you were there for the full era of Kwaito. Yeah, for sure. Like, I remember my brother pulled up with the T. We had the first PlayStation. What was cool about that is you could play music on it too. Like, yeah. you could play CDs on it. And my brother had the, the Halloween uh, joint by TKZ, and we used to play it on that because we didn't have a CD player. So that was like major, major for me when I was a kid. I didn't know it then. Like the entire Quattro era was like crazy for me. I really only got into like hip hop in South Africa. I think like most people when Water Camp came and cause they really like took it there. It's funny you mentioned TKZ cause TKZ was the first concert I ever went to as wow. a kid. They had come to Kenya. I can't remember what year it was. I just remember that they had come. Then I just remember bum bum ba dum bum bum. Bum, bum, oh, bum, yeah, bum. Yeah, yeah. 
and yeah i couldn't have called myself a fan of it then besides like the tkz but because it was there now that i've become an adult i'm like actually it was part of my diet Mm -hmm. as an adult i can now appreciate how much it's allowed for my taste and then appreciating south african music now and also then when i decided to actively get into south african music as an adult then seeing for example how much I'm a piano pulls from yeah, Quieto yeah, yeah. or how even some of the young rappers right now are even starting to pull from that age. Quieto was really, really, really something special. With all of this, because we are speaking within a, a local context, what are your current thoughts on the South African music industry when it comes to documenting its culture? Would it be written audio or in visual formats? Man, you know, that, this, that, this is the number one question or variation of this question, the number one question that I get asked. And uh, I don't really have an answer for it. I'll be honest with you. So I look at it like this. When I was at Hype, so I started out as an, as an intern first, then a staff writer, and then like a few other things. And then I worked my way up to being the editor. But during that time, you know, I mean, Mizi, who was one of the editors at the time, and Simone, who gave me the, you know, massive opportunity. Like, I really owe everything to her. It was probably Hype Magazine, YFM, and Channel O. Um, were really the only uh, platforms. So one was television, one was radio, another was print that were owning quote unquote like black music, like specifically hip hop or like what the remnants of Kwaito, what was left there in that transformational period or whatever. It was like really that because the stations or the broadcasters with mass listenerships or viewerships, like it wasn't like that. I mean, everyone knows right now we're experiencing a surge in, you know, whatever that may be, hip hop. Piano, all that stuff. And so at the time, like many people, I was very attached to the medium because it was pure, right? And also print was a very credible medium because it was an ink. It was almost like when something is in ink, it's gospel, you know what I mean? Yeah. And when print started to die, early 2013, 14, 15, online was very much seen as a threat to not just print as a medium and other traditional mediums, but in our industry and the space that we worked in to the actual credibility of the craft or the discipline. If you're on the internet, you can kind of just get away with saying anything and there's no like sub editors and fact checking and this and that and whatever. And so the immediate response was to resist right? And I even lived in that space for really long where I was like, yo, we can't let this die. And it was something that was out of our control because I mean, Rolling Stone had fell, SL Magazine had fell, and PC Format had fell, like all these mammoth titles that existed for years that were institutions in the industries that they uh, serviced were falling. And it was like, oh, well, this is going to happen and the world is going to crash and burn and we're all going to die. Like that's what it felt like at the time. And then, I, I mean, I don't know, I, I started to feel very differently about it because print or whatever is a tool, you know what I mean? It's a tool, like there was a time where like people didn't believe that hip hop was a thing, you know, it was going to be a trend, like other trends, it was going to come in and out. But I mean, then it had been around maybe 20 years in or 30 years in, long before I was born even. Yeah. And when, and it apparent to me at some point that this was a thing that identified with people. And I just asked myself, like, why am I here? Like, why did I get into this? And I was like, oh, it's about this thing that we're doing, not about the tool that we use to express it. So that's going to evolve like everything evolves, you know. Ours is to protect the thing. The tool is created to just further help us express it with less limitations. There's some bad things that come with that. And then there's some good things that come with that. But like, that's what comes with like evolution, you know. 
I look at how we document things. A positive part about that is like, it's democratized. The power is back in like the artists, uh, you know, control is like, there's, there's a, there's not as much of a need for whatever it may be a publication to monopolize stories. An artist can just hop onto their Instagram live or whatever, and like write what would have been a story that they would have to go, have gone through like a writer that and then gone through an editor and then waited three weeks for it to go to print and this and it's like oh like one month later like oh we got the answer like Nelly is still part of the lunatics it's like <laughs> the, the the story has has progressed like six weeks like yeah. tenfold since then you know it's like what would have been that is like as simple as like a tweet now you know and so and so I I think that there's there, there's value in it in, in in that if you look at it that way but then there's some things there are adverse that come with that as well is because like, oh, we have to question like objectivity now, you know, we have to question like credibility and all of those things. So the way I look at it, it's like, we are exactly where we're supposed to be. It's not even like a, this is better than that. Like we're exactly where we're supposed to be. Five years from now, the, like technology and social politics and whatever is going to influence the way that we communicate with each other, the way that we speak, the way that we document, and that will be, and we'll figure it out then like we figured it out now and five years ago and 10 years ago. So I hear what you're saying and I agree with a lot of it, but I also have this very weird thing for me in terms of how I kind of, because even the way that you're talking about it in terms of the monopolization, I think there were positives in terms of the actual streamlining of things from a traditional perspective, which I do think has kind of been lost in digital in terms of in terms of the mere fact of being able to have specific points. So as you've just mentioned, if someone then goes on a live and they then speak to their fans, a lot of that information then doesn't kind of last outside of like the different little scope that it's in for like the next generation. So for example, as a person, I've tried a lot to find a lot of different poem um, articles or poem um, information, and it becomes a lot hard because I was done a lot primarily through the digital age. And if a lot of that information was done within those digital mediums and siloed without the need for publications, mm -hmm. then it kind of still then remains siloed mm. to those circles without necessarily getting out. Mm. But at the other end of it, as you already said, I think at this point in time, I've never experienced the amount of range of voices actually talking about music or talking about art to be able to, to hear from someone who views it very, very technically, which is, I think, been primarily, um, if we look traditionally, the way that you kind of look at, the, um, look at it is a song in key. What is the thematic structure? This, 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 that. But then you now have Twitter bloggers or even just like YouTubers who are able to then, so for example, there's this um, YouTube channel where they basically break down Spitori rap from Peli because they're Peli people. And mm -hmm. the amount of knowledge that you get from that in terms of how they break down a 25K song or a Tato Soul song is something which I don't think they would have ever had access to yes. prior to that. Is there a way to find a, to find a happy medium <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> where we're able with this information which is very valuable information because there is a lot of rubbish information but I think there's always been rubbish information because mm -hmm. even when we look to 
the traditional end, there were some really bad critics who didn't know what they were talking about, who became an authority on a specific genre because they were at that publication, not because they, they had the passion mm-hmm. for that genre. But do you think there's an actual way that we can then music documentation can merge elements of traditional and digital so that, for example, someone 20 years from now, even like a kid who was fascinated like you in 2003 about Hype Magazine can then find those attach points to then say, okay, this is my goalpost of learning to then adapt from and bring forth well i think and maybe i can even recognize that maybe this belief is like a little naive because maybe the past 10 15 20 years of whatever it be record labels who are probably like the most powerful more powerful than broadcasters or whatever right now have kind of shaped and framed the way that we see the world even like influence technology and and in turn how technology influences. But I am of the belief that like nature, these politics, social politics, which is really what it is more than music, are self-regulating. And if music is, you know, a reflection of life and like what we're doing, if we go by the most stiff definition is like you famously said, if you want to know where hip hop is going, look at the people because like hip hop is a reflection of the people. So if, if we go by that, like it follows logic that there would be music that speaks to all of those facets, right? And what happens is over time, believe it or not, like 30 years ago, Run DMC was like commercial music. The, the genre was still underground, but I'm saying like it was commercial hip-hop music. Nas was commercial hip-hop music. The ceiling for hip-hop in general wasn't the charts back then, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm saying like 30 years ago, 25 years ago, whatever it may be, that was what was the thing that you found on the surface, right? But the values of the people who consume that evolved as well because the world changes. The values that we hold in high esteem are often divergent to a degree from like the generation before ours. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and the one before that and the one before that. So the things that my 10-year-old brother cares about are not the things that I cared about when I was 10. And then that is reflective in the music, right? It's like literally the subject matter, the sound, the content, all of those things. And so I am of the belief of that you can find anything that you're looking for. It's just if we define what the zeitgeist of the music is by what's most accessible, we're never really going to have like a holistic understanding. We're always going to be in the position where we're going to be like, oh man, remember when music was this? Like, I guarantee you that you can find anything that you're looking for. The same thing applies to the documentation of the music and the culture. I will say this though. I, I did like a documentary called Keys Open Doors like a few years ago. And the whole thing was about how information is like the most valuable resource, right? And, and I made like a lot of little examples like using my own life but one of the key questions that I was posing really was whose responsibility is it to document what's going on right now as Africans we're 5,000 years behind where we should be because we don't have the documentation right it was a combination of people coming over here and burning our shit through like an identity cleansing and just like at some point going we're here now so we're going to start from like point zero to here and it's like I don't know if like people understand like how valuable knowing who you are and where you come from is, right? We've gotten to a point where we get that. Like it's it's very much part of the social consciousness or the global consciousness. We're more assertive and adamant about like finding out who we are. And this is happening everywhere in the world, right? With disenfranchised people racially or whatever. 
But, but then we always get to the point, we sit down and have conversations like this. Everyone has conversations like this. Oh, there should be a body responsible for this and there should be someone who does this. And we, but like, whose responsibility is it? Because it's a, from experience, it's a very thankless. Uh, oh, it's uh, very, very thankless. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very thankless exercise or purpose or whatever you want to define it. At the same time, I don't blame people for not necessarily looking at that as an attractive thing to do because there's so many things that we've been deprived of that living in the new world, in the new South Africa, the, whatever you want to call it. It's like, we're looking at that and going, look, I want to experience that because prior to now, we've always been defined as a group. We never had the opportunity to be looked at as individuals. So we want to explore what that individuality means. I mean, we don't really even have that to the fullest extent right now. All of these things like keep getting us back to the point. It's like, whose responsibility is it to do it? Where are the prophets, the documenters, where are the storytellers? And the truth is that someone needs to do it. So what my original argument was in terms of saying the difference between traditional and digital, right, is that it was a lot easier to be able to find those markers of those people when it was the traditional sense, because I would never know about, for example, if we're talking about American culture, that Woodstock ever existed if magazines did not continuously every three years, whenever a new rock star, whenever a legendary rock person dies, reference that or Jimi Hendrix or this. So what then my part is, because I believe, for example, the YouTube, um, the YouTube channel, which I was speaking about that um, talks about actually we need to find the name. They are actually technically documenting that, right? Mm -hmm. But if on the other end, there are not people witnessing that documentation, ergo that does the documentation exist for then someone to be able to know to look for it 20 years from now i believe when we're talking about like who's documenting at this specific point in time because we've all become self-publishers and it's all moved so broadly we have a lot more documentation now than we did even for for example the woodstock but because it's so fragmented across all of Mm -hmm. these different places Is there a point since the digital has made everything fragmented that we then believe that a new bodies that we can then point to then can then come out? Because I do believe that they exist, but they're just not platformed as that or we don't view them in that light. Well, like what you're describing, it isn't like a new challenge. What you're describing existed even when they were the mega publications, but it's what you give up when you democratize the power to create. It's part of what you give up because if we just have to do like a bit of like revisionist history, the major publications that documented, you know, music, culture, festivals, fashion, or whatever, we only got to understand or view whatever the subject was through the lens of those major publications. But those major publications, when like revisionist history is showing us, had agendas, especially in South Africa. There's so many things that were like so cool that we never thought twice about like back then. And we look at now and go, damn, how did we let that thing right? And what I'm trying to say is that we could look at it in one way and go like back then, these things were so easy to find, but that's where the monopoly comes in is that often a lot of, whether it's like television or radio or magazines, 
a lot of those major publications were owned by the same corporations, like the higher up you go. And so when we reference things, sometimes we don't know the, the stories beyond the stories. And that has a big influence in shaping how we view those things. And so now we're in, in the online age. Like Jay-Z said in an interview when he released Magna Carta, he was like, when my album dropped, I read two reviews. I read one from a guy from the New York Times. And then I read one from like some dude on a blog, right? And he's like, in terms of quality, both of them were really high quality. And I understood the perspective that this guy took and I understood the perspective that guy took. It's like, that's representation. We give up the mass... Uh, uh, Making icons of things for right. the accessibility of democratization. Absolutely. Like 20, 30 years ago, you when the album came out, you were going to read three, four reviews, depending on what it was, a New York Times reviews, maybe a double XL reviews if, if you were that way inclined and something else. And then it would be like, oh, we collectively decided that this album is great and it's going to go number one. So that's what's going to happen. But there's always an underground culture bubbling up. There's always nuanced ways to break down things that, are not how we're doing it conventionally. And what's beautiful about this age is, yes, it's fragmented, but I read so many things on the internet. Of course, you have to practice, you know, objectivity and like source check. But I learn and read so many things on the internet that I'm like, wow, I never would have thought about it in that way. And the angle that this person is bringing in because of the background. And that's what I said in the beginning of this kind of like, it's a give and take thing. You know, it's like you give up some of that and you get some of this. And then people are going to become embittered with this thing and go, you know what, this is not good enough. When the people decide really that this is not good enough, one day something else is going to emerge and then we're going to dissect and analyze that thing and take the good parts out of it, hopefully, if you believe in the goodness of humans. That's what evolution is, you know? That's why I say, I think we're exactly where we need to be. There's going to be some casualties and that's where it's the responsibility of self-appointed documentary. When I put out that documentary, that was like my way of saying like, that's what I've committed my life to. I deeply care about myself. I deeply care about my people. There's strength in that. There's strength in knowing who you are and knowing where you come from. It's not always good, but like we'll improve on them. And I, with what you kind of pointed to earlier, the disposability of content, the instantaneous nature of things because of how saturated information is right now, that is a risk that faces us right now is just things kind of like going by and you can hardly remember like what happened this time last year you know the biggest theme for me in my life right now and everything that i do when i'm specifically speaking about black people is you know we never we never had the, the luxury of being afforded individuality in the past even now it's like if you saw like a tom like a white dude doing something like nobody goes like ah oh, geez like white people you know it's just like tom is an idiot but black folk didn't get afforded that luxury like forever it was always like this and that and so the, the more and you kind of, that, of still don't have it at all yeah. if you're doing something you're not doing it as Yes, exactly. or as Fred. And even if you don't do it consciously, that responsibility is involuntary on you because everywhere in the world that you go, we've been deprived of so many things that there are going to be so many firsts for the next hundred years, right? There are going to be so many firsts when it comes to Black folk for the next hundred years. So I'm saying that the more of that that we're taking, you constantly find yourself in a place where you have to consider that. And I'm not mad at people who go, I need for this to be about me and the thing that I'm doing. You know what I'm saying? I'm not mad at that because I can, I can understand that. I can completely understand individual ambition. And, and with that said, on the other side, that needs to be balanced. It's just one of those things. It's like we can continue to be mad about it and dissatisfied and be like, oh, man, it's not fair that I 
da da da. But it's like someone has to do it because the result of that is that 20 years from now something significant happens. It makes me so mad, like when I'm on the internet and I see like those things that go, did you know, like the person who created the most sophisticated water filtration system was like some kid from, you know, like Sudan who did, it's like, why, like that is like the most significant thing ever. It's like, why is that being treated so flippantly? But it's like, the rest of us are like, yo, I'm trying to get this accounting degree, you know what I mean? So that I can get the crib that I didn't have when I was growing up. And it's like, you are allowed to do that. It's so human. Like it's, it's a very, very human thing that I can't chastise people for. So yes, it's unfair that a few people have to take on the responsibility, but hopefully the more that this consciousness grows, we can galvanize and it could be a responsibility that's shared more and more, you know, and we can invest into it more and more. I've got an interesting question for you, but how much do you know about Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Uh, I'm familiar with it, I guess, on a surface level. I know that this is the pyramid with the... Uh, uh, that starts at this yeah. and then ends at actualization at the top, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I find interesting about what you're describing is that it kind of feels like for people to then want to take that responsibility or for even a culture to want to have that type of responsibility, there needs to be at least a greater sense of actualization because a lot of what you're talking about is the need to get this thing and you're getting what you need first before you can think about that. So if everyone's getting what they need and they're still climbing the hierarchy of needs, once you're in a place where you actually actualize, then you can think about the actual documentation, exactly. theoretically, Yes. if I'm making sense. Because even yes. critics, historically, not just critics, critics, philosophers, a lot of the stuff that we do historically has always been done by the top 1%. And That's it's it. by that design because you have the time to think. Mm -hmm. And when I say the time to think, it's just saying you actually have mm -hmm. time to think without wondering about when my next meal is coming from, or when this is Absolutely. coming from. And now because of accessibility, it's opened itself up to anyone who has the, the, the access to document something. You know why gender politics can be a thing in 2021 in the way that it is? I don't want to say there's less people starving, but I'm saying that 40 years ago when we were dealing with apartheid here and the question when you woke up every day was whether you were going to live or die, eat or not eat, those people didn't have the luxury of thinking about those things. It's not to say that these complexities didn't exist. They existed. But when the difference in the day is like whether you're going to live or die, you're going to deal with survival first before you deal with like the next thing or before you think about the fact that like, oh, I want to be an artist because I'm inclined this way and this and that. It's like, no, like I need to do something functional that's going to get me money now so that my parents can eat. Yeah. It's a constant tug of war, like when we speak about actualization. And you hit the nail when you said like most of those like significant innovations are being done by the 1%. Like that's a luxury. Being able to do, to pontificate about like rockets and what we're going to do in Mars. And like, it's like, great job, Elon Musk. It's very impressive, right? But... It's like, I can't personally like occupy my time with that. 
like right now, you know, there's some things that are way more urgent to me. But the trip here is that that same urgency that we have for survival is kind of the same level of urgency that we need for the documentation. The more history you know, the more you're able to actually understand trends because sometimes history is a way of repeating itself. And the only way you won't know that history is repeating itself is if you don't know history. Yeah. One of the greatest things, and I use great in quotations, that they did in terms of annihilating our history was very intentional because it doesn't allow us for us to actually pick up trends or to know previous history to then say, hey, this happened here. If this happens again, it's a problem. Yeah, it was genius. We're starting from ground Mm -hmm. zero, Mm -hmm. but we're not starting from ground zero in a place where everyone's on ground zero. We're starting from ground zero when ground 1050 already exists and we're trying to then catch that up with ourselves. But to then bring that back to uh, music documentation and specifically your music documentation, you have done thousands. I'm pretty sure at this point you've done thousands of interviews. If you had to pick a top three of your favorite on the record interviews or conversations written or visual, who would they be and why? Oh man, man, that is... I would say, I mean, in no particular order, what comes to mind is Youngster. Youngster in 2017, I think, I spent a week with Youngster. So my partner Vaughn and I, we had a something commissioned to us by Can Do. Well, we pitched something to them rather, and then long story short, like got them to agree to fund this thing that Wait, was- Wait, was that documentary shot in a week? Yeah, it was shot in two weeks. We spent a week in Johannesburg, and then we spent a week in Cape Town. I'm not very proud of the product. I, I need for that to be said. It didn't reflect the experience, but you know, we were new filmmakers and we experienced a lot of tribulations in that process, but the experience is invaluable still. I mean, that week that I spent with Youngster in Cape Town, it was eye-opening, educational, intense, heart-wrenching, and Youngster is such a such a dynamic guy and He's very inspiring because of his passion for what we're talking about. He views himself as a as a documenter, not even as a musician. Like, you know, rap and music and these things are secondary to what he feels is his purpose. Everything that he does is is it just like resonates with him. He's literally like a like a hood hero, you know. And we had so many conversations in that week. And I guess you could look at the product as a as a little sample of that. I do think it was it was a very beautiful documentary. As much as you may not like the final product, the final product I do think is still definitely worth the time that it's it's there for. So number two. Number two, man. Uh, I did a very early OK Malum Cool Cat interview when he was with Dirty Paraffin. At the time that we did that interview, like it felt like it, but I, I didn't know what that was. Like everything was about to change, you know, it was like 2011, maybe 2011, 2012, that everything was about to change. The landscape of music was about to be turned on its head. Uh, we were about to ask ourselves a lot of difficult questions about you know, identity and, and how it's being reflected in music. I didn't know him at all at the time. And I was introduced to him through like MK, who we mutually knew. And I had a conversation with him. And for the life of me, I could not understand anything this guy was saying. 
I was I was fascinated by it and I was enamored by it. I I, I will put him and and Spook Matumbo together. It, it was one part of a two part kind of thing. I wasn't familiar with Spook Matumbo at the time either. And you know, looking back now, I don't know if we recognize it even now, or if it's recognized like to a greater audience how much that era in music and that particular group of people who were doing those things back then impacted and really made us take a sharp turn in 2014-15. Yeah, I, I I would have to say that Malunko Cat slash Spook Matambo for Future Sounds of Mzansi, that's what the series was called. That ended up being a documentary that another filmmaker, Lebohan Rasateba, made. So that was also, that has to be up there for me. So then what's the third one? I would just have to throw in the Kid Cudi interview. That's purely selfish. You know, oh no, you're allowed to be selfish. I love selfish answers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's purely selfish. I, it was the first time I was ever interviewing someone that I was a fan of. To that extent, I think I do a pretty good job at being professional and I go into like journalist mode. And at that stage, I'd interviewed like a bunch of cool people, like even international people, Nas who was my favorite rapper, and Jesse Boykins, Vashti, you know, who was the first female to do the Nike collaboration, and Simon Wood, who's the founder of Sneaker Mag. But it was like Kid Cudi was like great because more times than not, you can't help feeling drawn to someone whose music means something to you. But that's not who they are, you know, like it's not who they are most times. It's their music is like something else. And having interviewed Kid Cudi was was cool. And then he was cool. And uh, yeah, I that was fun. I enjoyed that. Okay, cool. And a lot of our conversation has focused a lot on your documentation side, mm -hmm. but you've also moved even within your film into more um, fictional spaces. For example, with your music videos for your Lord Kisses and yeah. your Mars Babies, of which I think it's the Over It music video. I am in love with that music video? Because both both Mars Baby music videos that you've done, it's literally just a single frame and a lot is just happening in that single yeah. frame. So besides budget, because part of my head says budget was one of the constraints. Yeah. What goes into your process of then creating those artistic pieces? Because budget only came in, budget came into my head like when I was watching it the first time, but literally a minute into it, I was like, but even with a still frame, you have done so much yeah. with the still frame because literally the the twerking against this, against that. So how are you finding this, this type of format of storytelling? Mm. Music videos aren't things that I've ever been interested in doing. Also kind of a coincidental thing and a response to the circumstance that we found ourselves in. So two years ago, uh, Coalition kind of merged and then eventually became absorbed by Stain Entertainment through our relationship with them. And um, we started a record label and uh, the record label is called Stay Low. So wait, um, for those who don't know, can you explain who Stain Entertainment is? Stain Entertainment is a kind of like a multi-discipline organization that really is invested in growing talent in Africa and has and is continuing to put a lot of effort into being the portal to the world. You know, like people will know uh, things like Rocking the Daisies, that's a Stain Entertainment initiative. The Hallmark House, which is a boutique art hotel situated in, in Maboneng, that's a Hallmark House initiative. Most recently, the record label uh, Stalo, 
uh, where we're developing a lot of really cool uh, new talent like Mars Baby and Lord Cares, but also management that we do for more established artists. So it's uh, Azuchi Coke Dope, Shooter Coombs, who's like a superstar producer, her Cut the Lights, who people will know from, you know, all the Blackie uh, catalog, Buntir Modisele, who we manage. I know I'm forgetting a few, <laughs> but it, it paints a picture. Yeah. 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 So, 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 so that's, that's who we are as Stain Entertainment. And I currently serve as a creative strategist. So I work across the board in partnership with the managers or the, the directors of each uh, stable under Stain Entertainment. Um, so, yeah. So, so, so one of those uh, stables is the record label and management company, Stalo. And that's run by Vaughn, who was my partner at uh, Coalition before we were absorbed here. And we still work really closely together. And so, yeah, so, so when we started the label, it's, we're an independent record label. And um, having had the limited experience that we, 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 we did in filmmaking, you know, we weren't like 100% confident with like doing music videos, more because of the technical aspect, but we were really confident in our ideas and the ability to like communicate things, like just figure out the medium and then communicate them. So we threw our hats in figuring it out. And we felt that we had the space to do that because the artists that we were working with were in development stages. And we were going to take it seriously because we were the people investing in, mm -hmm. in the whole endeavor. Yeah. So idea and execution. To me, the things that are the most uh, impactful um, when you think about the process are the simplest. I'm definitely a student and disciple of the late Virgil Abloh and his approach to creativity is like he was an architect and he studied architecture and engineering so he was like functional based in everything that he did even the early days of off-white he spoke about it developing like workwear you know for like the 21st century people and his whole process was deconstructing things and that's how we look at it we work through a reverse engineering process you know so what do we want to achieve and then break it down to its simplest form. It's also a, a really cool, like creative exercise to do when you have a little to do the most with a little, right? Yeah. And that's why ideas, the quality of the ideas is the number one thing for us. Often what people try to do is they look at the final product in all its complexities, and then they try to reverse engineer the product, but it's not really about the product. So the product is a result of the idea and the execution of the idea, of course. And we're just about having like the best idea because you could have 300,000 Rand as a budget for a music video and come up short, but like we-, we really The writing news is talking because in television, at least in t television writing rooms, what we say story is king. So it's essentially that if you don't have a good story or good idea, even if with the greatest budget, yeah. you will just make something cool, but it doesn't necessarily you still need that beginning exactly. nexus of the idea of the story to then exploit that further. Yeah, exactly. And everything that I work on in respect to the visuals for the artists I work on with Vaughn. So it's like, we're like just of the same tribe and it's really easy to work with him like from day one. He's a really incredible strategist. He's really big on execution, which is something that I learned a lot from him. So he was on the one side of the extreme with just like getting things done. And I was on the other side of the extreme with just the, the, the idea and the abstract thing. And so where I was lacking, he made up and vice versa. We're about doing the most with the least. And it's, it's kind of like a subversive exercise to kind of show people too, like you could have the embellishments and the 
trappings of like, oh, like we have the best camera, but we like really pride ourselves in just like executing the best ideas. And a big part of that also does come from the artist as well. I guess one of the perks of working somewhere that you're developing and figuring it out is that you don't ever have to work on anything that you don't truly believe in, you know? So all those guys are guys that we truly believe in, that we see something special in. And so it, it makes it a lot easier to execute those ideas. So with all of that, what's next for you in terms of like where you see things going for yourself in like the next two or so years? Because I know it used to be five years, but then the pandemic has made me not ask five years because, (laughs) hey. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) what do you see in the next phase or what ideally, what would you like the next phase of your life? It doesn't even have to be your career, but your life as Frederic Kayembe to look like. I mean, there is no next phase. There's just now. I, I mean, I've been focusing a lot on on being present in the moment and taking that in as much as I can with everything that I do. Honestly, man, I don't really think a lot about like the next phase. I'm like, this is the phase. This is the only phase that matters. It's like this one now. And just doing things with intention, man. I, I think like my, my whole thing is like the pursuit of dopeness. And I don't mean that in a superficial way. Like, you know, influence is a word that is in like our lexicon right now because like it's literally become a profession that you can pursue. It's a bit trippy. And where I make the distinction for myself, where I make the distinction between influence and dopeness is I think dopeness is influence with intention, right? When I think about dopeness, to use Virgil again as as an example, I mean, this is a man, when you look at the course of his life, who shouldn't have been what he was and what he is, because he was an engineer and an architect who, when you think about him now, it's really difficult to define who he was and what he's meant to the world using like a word or a term or a profession, right? And I think that because he was so relentlessly in pursuit of what he was passionate about, he was able to do something that really leaves like a remarkable legacy. It kind of, you know, without being trite, like makes you want to be like, better for some reason. Not only was he so like incredible that everything that he was doing, all these miscellaneous things, but his work had intention. When you listen to his philosophy is that it had intention. And and, and that's the distinction between like being cool and and for me and like, or just having like influence and being dope. And so when I say there is no like next phase, I'm like, this is the phase now is doing everything that I do with intention. Maybe that's a bit abstract, but... It was an open question. <laughs> you can give an open answer. I definitely understand where you're coming from. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for giving us your time. And I really appreciate you coming on. I honestly couldn't think of, at least for me personally, a better guest to start the second season off with. Purely because of when I was researching you, seeing all of the th- things which felt like similarities between us in your story which have inspired me from your work to just your journey and as you're on this journey of dopeness you have created a lot of dope content and I know that you're going to create a lot more and I am very appreciative of you taking this time to share these little trinkets of your story with us thank you so much Thank you. Well, I, I thank you. I, I appreciate you, uh, you know, fishing me out from the depths of obscurity. <laughs>
to be on your platform yeah and it's been really cool that was the 46th episode of all that gas thank you so much for listening if you'd like to reach out to us, you can do so by sending an email to allthatyazpodcast at gmail.com. I repeat, allthatyazpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned as we'll bring you more insightful episodes in this brand new season of our show. I am Yaz from All That Yaz, and have a lovely rest of your day. Hey.